podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber, and we have another podcast where I'll answer your questions on cricket. And uh, I'm if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll be able to see I'm in some random location at the moment, uh, uh, Selford, <laughs> uh, as I'm up for the Old Trafford test. So I'm having to do this a little bit earlier. Remember, we're going to be eventually moving all of our video podcasts over to the Jared Kimber podcast um, channel on YouTube. So if you want to continue to uh, get in touch with us while we're doing the lives, please do. We mostly, especially on weeks like this when I've got so many questions come in, we mostly can only do super chats. But the more people who comment, obviously, it boosts up our room and everything else. So thank you to everyone who does do that. Uh, but let's get started with the questions. Remember, the easiest way to ask a question is to contact uh, or is to follow us on Patreon. And then if uh, you just uh, get the whatever tier it needs to be to ask a question, and then you send them in and I read them out like I'm going to do for Sandip, who says, what are your thoughts on the increasing use of technology such as DRS in cricket? Has it improved the game? Yes, I think LBW decisions are 100%, well, 100% is the wrong, wrong term, being that we're talking about technology here. Uh, but LBWs, if you go back and watch cricket from the 90s, uh, Robo Linda's channel is the best one. Bruce Reed was a left-arm seamer who was about six foot seven. He would pitch the ball two inches outside of leg stump. It would hit someone on the hip and the umpires would give them out LBW. We know so much more about the LBW law now because of that. Obviously, you know, occasionally... <laughs> You know, we're learning things like the batter doesn't always know when they've hit it, right? You know, little things like that. Catches is the only one where I think it's probably, we probably still get closer to the truths on catches, but realistically, uh, because of the foreshortening and because of the weird camera angles we have at grounds, we're never going to get all the information uh, that we want from catches. So I, I think there's, you know, there's certainly an issue that is there. But in general, I think that cricket has changed because of technology. But clearly, spinners are getting a lot more LBWs the way they should. Uh, the ball isn't always slipping down the leg side. Players who are leaving the ball and it flicks their pad are no longer giving out LBW automatically. So I think there's a lot of strengths there from, from what we've seen so far um, in technology. Ben says, Anderson Broad, Ashwin Jadeja, Bolt Southie. Might have already said this last one. Warner Kawaja Smith. Who is the best prepared for the loss of their aging legends? Oh, okay. Um... I suppose that Anderson Broad can be replaced by Wokes Robinson, which at home is fine, maybe doesn't travel as well away from home. But England usually find a lot of bowlers like Anderson Broad, maybe not at, obviously at Anderson and Broad's talent, but I don't think it's a particularly hard thing for them to be able to replicate. Ashwin and Jadeja, well, I mean, they've already got Akshar um, as an understudy there. The, I think the thing that you can't really replace with Ashwin and Jadeja is probably the fact that they can both bat. So even if you get to more, you know, um, uh, I forget who's the guy who used to play for Mumbai. Uh, is it Giant Yadav? Um, even someone like him, like I don't think he's quite at the same level with battle ball. Washington soon does another one as well. So replacing them with players of a similar amount of batting is going to be hard. And then, you know, as good as Akshar is, he hasn't really played away from home all that much, right? So we don't actually know how his bowling is going to transfer internationally. Washington Zuna, we know a little bit about. Giant Yadav uh, is probably older himself, actually, come to think of it. Um, and Akshar is not particularly young. 
So it's not an easy one to replicate. If you look at Indian spin bowling options in in the IPL, which is when we get to see their domestic cricketers the most, there aren't that many players there with, that were like, oh, this guy could take over from Ashwin. Bolt and Southie. Ooh. Um, Bolt and Southie. You should be able to replace Southie just because, again, a little bit like Anderson, New Zealand should be able to find those sorts of bowlers. And remember, they've got Jameson already coming through. I'm not sure you're going to replace Bolt, Southie, and Wagner. There is no other Wagner at the moment. Um, and Bolt, someone who can bowl 90, 92 miles an hour left arm, but is a swing bowler, uh, is very, very hard to replace. Like New Zealand might not find another bowler, anything like that, for another 15 or 20 years. So that is hard to replace. And then Warner Kwaja Smith. We can't replace Smith. Um, you could probably replace Warner's overseas runs. And Kawaja, I mean, as bad as it is, if Australia are going to lose all three of them around the similar time, I mean, we don't, so obviously you're just guessing in this question as well. Uh, the thing with uh, Kawaja is they haven't actually had him that long, right? So, um, yeah, that's a, you, you, if you've had someone for 10 years, then it's a big deal because, you know, you probably, even the players who were probably supposed to have replaced him, um, you know, are now aging out, right? That's not quite the case with someone like Kawaja. Christopher says, what would success at number three for Moen be? Do you know what, Christopher? I think I answered this on Uncovered the other night, but realistically, considering that this is a low-scoring uh, test series, uh, I'd have to go through the full averages, you know, to give you a statistical mark. But if Moen Ali managed to make 60 runs throughout the two innings, I think that's a par um, score for England. Like, that, that, that means it's worked. That's based on this particular series, how the cricket's being played, and the fact that, you know, Ben Stokes can't be a bowler. You know, consistently, obviously, you'd want a lot more runs than that from your number three. He didn't look particularly good when he batted at number three in the last test. However, he is kind of a number three by trade. Even if he's not quite a test quality number three, you know, he's a first-class level number three. He might feel more comfortable there. And coming into the test match, knowing he's going to bat there, I always thought that... There was always a, an issue with Moen Halley is that England used him to paper over cracks when he's not probably good enough to be a player that you can just move around. This is his position. And telling him beforehand, I think, is a really good, uh, I mean, number three or number four, I suppose, for his position. But, but telling him beforehand, letting him know, and also probably saying to him, not that they would say 60 runs is your par, but they're probably going to say, look, any runs that you make more than we you would get from you at number seven is a bonus. And if we get your number seven runs at number three, that's not the end of the world. A lot of it's going to depend on how early he's in as well. David says, why is orthodox finger spin so prevalent in women's cricket? Lack of power to take them down or just that wrist mystery spin? Um, is it where it quite needs to be compared to the men? Uh, so a big part of this, and I don't know if everyone knows, but the ball is a lot... Um, a lot smaller. Um, but even with the ball being smaller for women's cricket, there aren't, there haven't been traditionally as many women with, you know, huge long fingers or big hands being able to rip the ball. So a lot of the finger spin that you have seen traditionally in women's cricket has been what we would call rollers. So if you've ever seen someone down in your nets, David, and they're basically just ripping the hand around, almost like an off cutter, that's essentially what most off spin is or finger spin has been in women's cricket. That is changing. And you're seeing that with, you know, someone like Sophie Eccleston who actually gives the ball a proper tweak. And then you're seeing the wrist spinners rise. So I do think that the athletes are getting a little bit bigger um, and a little bit stronger, um, you know, more athletic with the way they're going. And, and we don't think about spin as a form of athleticism. I've talked about this before, you know, with Shane Morn. His athleticism was one of the things that we undervalue. And partly because, you know, he was a little bit chubby and, you know, Ashlyn is not the most traditional athlete as well. Um, Harass is probably another one, right? But 
the athletic skills that they do possess, you know, longer fingers. Um, there's a great old photo of Lance Gibbs, if you want to do Lance Gibbs hands, and you get to see the sort of size. And, you know, if you've ever met Ashley Giles, he's another one where you see the size of his hands. Monty is another one, just phenomenal sized hands. And also the strength that some of them have in their wrists um, and their shoulders and all these sorts of things is, is incredible. And I think as more athletes come in, and I think that it's, it's very hard to be a rolling leg spinner. You generally, as a leg spinner, your big advantage is the amount of revolutions you can put on the ball. Uh, you know, and I think from that perspective, then, you know, certainly got a point of, what's the best way of putting this? Rolling it probably doesn't give as much advantage when you're bowling wrist spin, whereas rolling it with finger spin can give you some advantage. The other thing I would say is that because women were shorter, they quite often would bowl with, with sort of more round arm actions. They were keeping the ball very, very low with finger spin. And, you know, you see a lot of finger spinners bowling in the death in T20 cricket, in women's cricket, and sometimes even one day cricket. And that's because they can be very hard to get up and under because they are bowling from a far lower height than most men are. So I do think all those things sort of came in. It's a really good question, though. Um, I'm trying to think. If, I don't think I've ever talked to anyone in women's cricket about this. So uh, I will try and actually, uh, I've got a friend who's a bowling coach in women's cricket. I might try and run him by it one time and see if there's anything else I've missed. Jake says, there's been a lot of spin bowled in the white ball matches in the women's ashes. Oh, it looks like we've got another question here. Australia having four spinners yesterday, England bowled with Eccleston at the death in T20s. Do you think the women's game suits spin more due to lack of pace and the players can whack at 100, and players who can whack at 100 metres? Are spinners still on the ball in, in men's white ball game? Um, this, I didn't realise this was going to be the women's spin edition of Wagon Wheel. Uh, I, I'm massively excited about these weird questions. But... Um, Australia had four spinners, but they also have four seamers. They basically have 80 overs that they can bowl at any one time. And that's part of the reason they win so much. They have the ability to sort of just use what they need to use. And in any situation, I would say it's probably the best way of putting it. Um, so I think from that perspective, I don't think it's that much different. I do think I've looked at this, Jake, and I want to say that there isn't that much of a higher percentage of spin bowled in women's cricket. But you are right. I think Ashley Gardner opened in the one day and it's being played right now. Check those scores. Uh, and uh, we certainly had, you know, Jess Jonathan is a fantastic death bowler. We've seen, you know, a lot of other spinners around the world in similar situations. As you said, Eccleston was another one. I do think at the death, when the ball is softer, uh, that it's even harder for the women to just clear the boundaries. Women do clear the boundaries a lot more, obviously, than they did seven or eight years ago. It's probably been that sort of Certainly since women's big bashes come on, I think, you know, women are not having as much trouble clearing boundaries. But when you do have a softball at the end and it and you have to generate your own pace, especially when you've got, I think if you have top order players in, teams will probably be, depending on, you know, the bowlers, like Eccleston and Jess Johnson are specialists, so that's different. But I think when you have top order players in, you might consider not bowling as much spin at the death in certain situations. But for a lot of, you know, women's cricket, you still have a lot of outside of some of the better teams, you still have the six, seven, and eight who, you know, they're not particularly big hitters. They might be decent batters. They might be able to ma manipulate the field a little bit, but you're not worried about them taking you down. And so I do think that is a part of it. Um, the other thing from the previous question is also, I think because they bowl with a lower arm action, in, in some cases, they sort of skid the ball a little bit more through. It's actually hard to get under them if they're bowling really well. I think Jess Jonathan is really good at that. Um, I haven't, I've seen Eccleston bowl at the death. I'm trying to think if she does the same thing. But I do think that's a part of it. Uh, ben says, I don't really care about overrate. 
but I care about overs lost. How do we fix the uh, the lost overs? It always strikes me as odd when we finish at half six in glorious cricket weather. Uh, why not continue playing to the overs are done and the umpires decide the conditions are unfair? It's fair. I, I understand this. I, the overrate one is an interesting one from my perspective. I don't pay for tickets anymore, right? So I don't feel personally ripped off. But you talk to a lot of fans, and there are some fans who absolutely... I, I know it's, there's this thought that overrates is sometimes a myth by by the media. It's not a myth by the media. A lot of fans will complain about it. When we did polite inquiries, I would say every day we had an overrates question. It was that common. So I do think the fans do are concerned about it. But I think there is also that point of um, we... Some people will just say, if the cricket's good, it doesn't matter. And I, I think all these things are very fair. So whether you're pro-overrates or anti-overrates, I would say that the biggest myth with overrates is that it's just the bowling team's job. I think we now know that that's just not true. And and it doesn't really make that much sense um, when you look at it from that perspective. So I think, I, th- I believe we'll eventually get to the point where we have a pitch clock. But the reason that baseball got to a pitch clock or a shot clock, um, you know, situation is because baseball got to the point where it was slowed down so much that the actual game the fans were turning away from it because of the speed at which the game was being played i'm not sure we're at that point in cricket at the moment and i actually think in some cases like the ipl kind of feel like the ipl want the games to go longer that's an extra hour 45 minutes of content um from that perspective so i think it would have to be that we get to a point where we worry about we worry about the speed of the game when it comes to overrates and whether it's actually turning off casual fans, which to be fair, there's a fair argument for that already. If you look at what was going on with the hundred, that was one of the big things that the hundred uh, found out in their research, but I'm not sure it's enough at the moment. As for the lost overs idea, look, I get it. I, I don't have a problem. And in some ways, if you were to say to teams, well, you're going to have to bowl your overs regardless, um, as long as the conditions are, you know, in the batter's favor, or, you know, the light is in the batter's favor. Wouldn't we then have a situation where the bowlers would suddenly realize that you might have an extra hour tacked on? The one thing I would say to your your comment there, though, Ben, is that is really only a case in a couple of countries. A lot of countries, there's no way you could tack on any light um, at all. Uh, sorry, at the end of the day, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of maybe somewhere like Brisbane, I want to say, somewhere where it gets dark very early. Pakistan, I think, is another one. Is it Sri Lanka might be another one as well? There are you know, certain venues, certainly, that have these issues. So it's something that works in England um, because you get light a lot longer. I'm not sure it would work everywhere, but I, I understand why you've come up with it. Christian says, when, play, when players receive media training, what does this involve? Um, look, every board does it differently. I, I think what they try and do now I'll I'll talk about what they do now compared to when I started. When I started, it was very much give these sorts of responses, deflate uh, the question in this way, ask ask a question in the response. Sort of the way that you would train a politician um, was the sort of original way of doing it. It was very, 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 very managed at that point. And I think now what they do is they're much smarter at understanding that actually a press conference is an advantage for an athlete and for the team itself. And so there's a lot of thing of, you know, being yourself, but being aware of how things will be turned against you, how things might be seen, even if you don't mean it that way. So I know of one particular player who was told by the cricket board, if you're, if you're sarcastic, that's fine, but make sure you smirk at the end, right? Or make sure at the end you make it really, really clear it's a joke. Um, 
those sorts of things are, are, are very, very um, helpful. They usually have little courses. They they interview people. Sometimes they, I, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to get journalists in sometimes and just be like, you know, you've got a bunch of young players here, interview them um, and go through these players so they know what to do. It, explaining things like blogs and podcasts was a big part of what media training used to be. But I think there's a much more, when I started, it was very much that you players were trained on not how not to get in trouble. And I think now players are trained on how to let their personal style come through. But yeah, di- different boards do it in different ways. As I said, sometimes they do mock stuff. Sometimes you'll get journalists to come along and it won't be mock, uh, but it might be early on in a player's career and you're trying to see how they interact. Um, and, you know, a lot of it will be, you, you might've said something to the press and it may not have blown up massively. Uh, I, I can think of one situation where there was something that happened with a player where we didn't use what the player said in the press conference because we knew the way he meant to say it wasn't quite the way it came out. But if we'd put snippets of, of online or anyone had used the quotes of it, this player would have got into a negative um, media space. Uh, you know, they, it was probably at the birthplace of Twitter. So Twitter wasn't massive, but Twitter was around. The bloggers would have got involved with it. You know, the, um, some of the tabloidy papers might have got involved with it as well. There's an actual fact. In this case, it was just an easy thing of passing back to the player. The way he said the thing he was trying to say wasn't right. And there are lots of times when people say stuff to the media now and the media uh, people will go back and they'll just be like, see how you said it like this. What you're saying is fine, but you, you know, you need to understand that you're not just playing to that one journalist that you know, you're playing to a room and then that room is going out to the world and those sorts of things. So it has changed a lot. I haven't been involved with training players in a very, very long time. I've written um, stuff for cricket boards on how they can better do things. Um, I still think it's very defensive. I, I think a lot of the media stuff is is very, very defensive. Whereas I actually think the best media officers generally understand how the media works and also the best way to sell each individual player, right? Which is kind of what it should be. Shashank says, a day-night matches in ODI is problematic. The team batting second gets a big letter as the due factor comes into play. Look, that depends on whether there is due factor. Um, I, I have looked at the stats, but I don't think there's a huge amount of difference um, in the stats between batting first and batting second in ODI internationals. I, but I also believe that that's what the ICC, if they were run correctly, should be looking at, right? Is, is there something there? Is there a way of fixing this? Are there certain grounds that shouldn't play day-night? Test, um, test matches, well, test matches as well, but one day is in T20s because of that. Um, is there a way we can invest in technology or even, you know, old school logistical methods to be able to stop the Jew coming in? Um, all these sorts of things. And I feel like at the moment, that's probably my bigger issue. But I remember, remember when the UAE World Cup happened and everyone was upset, even looking at the UAE figures, it wasn't specifically as dramatic outside of that World Cup as, as it was in that particular tournament. And so sometimes we get a small sample size and everyone gets very upset. But I think Jew is part of playing day-night cricket. And it, it's something that has, has been around as long as we've played this format of cricket and we're you know, now 40 years into it, right? Teams know and teams make those decisions in the same way that you might want to bat first on the first morning of a test match, but you're also aware that ball might be nipping around a little bit. Like you have to make those decisions in cricket all the time. It's part of the genius of the game or the idiocy of the game. James says, which of these records do you think is least likely to be broken? Sachin's 15,921 runs, Bureau's 800 wickets, or Booney's 52 cans between Sydney and London? Well, I mean, James, I fundamentally don't think that 
David Boone ever drank 52 beers. I think it's absolute nonsense. I've never trusted any men who claim to know how much alcohol they've drunk. They're always going to be talking out their ass in that situation. And you're telling me that the flight hostesses were counting how many beers that David Boone specifically was drinking? Have you met flight attendants? It, it just, it, 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 it's not. I, also, the amount of liquid that he would have drunk, he would have been on the toilet like most of that time. Just don't believe it at all. Plus, he would have slept anyway. Um, also, if you go back to the records he broke, they kept changing those numbers anyway. The whole thing is just utter stupidity. Um, uh, so Sachin's 15,921 runs and Murali's 800 test wickets. I mean, for those two records to get broken, what needs to happen is that test cricket probably needs to become a specialist sport, needs to be protected and going ahead. So as we're currently going towards, I don't see that happening. And so I would say that both of those records are pretty unlikely to be broken just because I don't think anyone would have that kind of longevity. Having said that, how many more years does Joe Root need to break the Murley record suggests that, uh, sorry, the Murley record. Now he's a spinner again. The Sachin record suggests that I suppose there is a chance that Joe Root can do it in this generation, whereas I don't see a bowler who's going to go past me early in this generation. So from that point, I would say that the Sachin record is more likely to be broken. All right, uh, let's have a a break. And then after the break, uh, we will finish up with the Patreon questions and then we'll see if there's anything in the room. But you're listening to Wagon Wheel and I am Jared Kimball. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. All right. Thank you to everyone in the comments on YouTube at the moment. Jay and Aaron, Amar and R and Tommaso, Lester. Uh, who else we got in there? Kyle's in there as well. Uh, Ryan. And there's a, there's a super chat in there as well, which I will get to in a little while from RR as well. Uh, but let's just get back to uh, the questions on Patreon. Uh, James says, if you're designing yourself as a player in a cricket video with a limited amount of points to allocate to different attributes and skills, how would you want to allocate them? I would want to be a left-arm seam bowler who bowls as fast as possible, uh, who can slog like Andre Russell. I think that was always kind of the thing. Like, Wazim Akram is not far off that, although his batting's probably not quite at that level. But the idea of being able to bowl left arm as quick as possible um, and then slog as much as possible, the rest I don't need. To be honest... I'm, I'm going through a crisis of my cricket at the moment because I no longer, can, well, at the moment, until my shoulder recovers anyway, I can no longer bowl the way that I want to bowl. Uh, you know, played in a game recently and I had to be a sensible batter. Um, it's just it's crap. I don't understand why any of you ever try and do it. Just slog the ball. It's so much more fun. And then you can bowl a couple of overs later. Um, so that's kind of always been the ideal thing. I mean, le- leg spin is obviously very cool as well and uh, more than happy to have bowled that back in the day. But uh uh, I think if I was a proper video game, you want to be able to knock people's head off and hit sixes, right? Like, that's the dream. Uh, Camp says, I've always felt that the biggest strength Mick Lenning as a captain had is a batting, but looking at how Australian women's team have given some, uh, given up some close games without her, uh, suggests that she's a better captain than it appears. I think that Mick Lanning is a very, very intelligent cricketer. I remember her being mic'd up for a training session with the Australian team one time, and you had her chat and you had like two or three other women 
and you just realized that she was seeing the game on a different level. Um, I've talked to people who played club cricket with her, uh, you know, having followed her the way that she, you know, even at press conferences and everything. I think she's a really, really intelligent cricketer. I'm not sure that that directly responds to what you're saying there, Cam, about her not playing and then therefore um, Australia struggling in closer games because I think England have improved a little bit as a team of recent times as well. So I think we have to give some credit to them. But if you take Meg Lanning out of your side, I don't think you're going to be as good as if you had Meg Lanning, and that's batting and captaincy and also probably professionalism as well. I think she was an elite professional uh, before that was a thing in women's cricket. Philip says, how do you expect the pitchers to act in the US as they hopefully establish as a cricket nation? Obviously, the closest neighbours to the West Indies could indicate they could be similar to there, uh, but the country also has some varying climates. Yeah, I think America is going to be one of those places because it does have many different climates that actually West Indies might be a, a, a good place to think about. Also, it depends on where they, you know, they might import stuff and do all sorts of other things as well. But I think the West Indies is the best one I don't think you'll get, obviously, as much heat in, in, in the fairest parts of America, but certainly up north. Um, and I worry about the quality of the squares, which is where I'm talking about importing and everything else. But, you know, you sh- a wicket in Seattle and a wicket in Florida, they're in the same country, right? But they're absolutely nothing like each other in terms of climate or anything else. So there should be a big difference there. So... West Indies has always been one of my favorites because of that. Uh, that you know, you get the uh, Dominica pitch, you get the St. Lucia pitch, you get the Barbados pitch, you get the uh, Guyana pitch, you know, very, very different from wicket to wicket. I always thought that was a huge advantage for West Indies cricket. The players got to develop on so many different kinds of pitches, which isn't the case everywhere. Um, so from that perspective, it might help USA cricket. But yeah, I do expect them to be very, very variable. I think traditionally the the, the quality of pitches in Canada and the USA and I've never played there and haven't watched a lot of cricket there. But from what I've been told, it's not always been the, the, the fastest sort of, of wickets. But, you know, there's a lot more money being uh, thrown into the game there at the moment. So you would hope that those things would change a little bit. Uh, Niran says, do you have any interesting stories about cricket-related music? So my favourite story about cricket-related music is the Brett Lee had a band which were called Six and Out. Uh, and that was Brad McNamara, who ended up being Channel 9 uh producer and now Fox producer who then hired Brett Lee quite a bit. Shane Lee was in the band who also played um, uh, with Brett Lee. Brad McNamara obviously was a really good player for New South Wales, but never cracked the Australian team. Uh, So Brett and Shane Lee both played for Australia. I want to say the drummer was Gavin Robertson, but I might be making that up. But I feel like Gavin Robertson, this spinner, um, who I think got hit for a six, his first ball in Test Cricket by Sachin Tendilka. I might have got some of those details wrong, but I know he got hit for a six. uh, he was involved, and the cult icon Richard Chiqui, who, if T20 inv- uh, existed in the 90s, would have been, you know, just an absolute favourite in the IPL. What an explosive player he was at a time when you weren't really supposed to do that. So they they did a cover of How's That, uh, the famous cricket song, um, and they also did a song on the other side of the EP, uh, which was called Totally Average Band, which was them making fun of themselves, but it just, it was, yeah, it wasn't ideal. Um uh, I want to say Shane Lee was the singer in that band, but I'd have to go back and have a look. But I've got the CD somewhere. I think I still own it to this day. Um, so, you know, I supported New South Wales cricket far more than most Victorian fans did. So that's what, one of my favourite stories. But my other favourite story is, and I, I won't be able to remember the song, but you can find this on uh, YouTube. Herbert Chang, who was one of the players who went and played rebel cricket in, in South Africa as a West Indian, uh, was a... 
I'm trying to remember what island he's from. I should know this. Um, but he, he, you know, one of the West Indians, he was an opening batter, um, took a lot of hits to the head, had a very, very um, poor second half of his life. But he has an absolute tune. It might be my favorite song by a cricketer I've ever heard. And I think if you just Google Herbert Chang's song, you'll be able to find it. There's no music video or anything. It's literally just um, the song that plays on YouTube. Um, it's such a talented player, uh, you know, that never quite made it at the top level. Obviously, the, the Rebel League didn't ha- help, but he was also, I'm pretty sure he was an opening batter and, you know, Haynes and Greenwich was around. He wasn't going to get into the main side anyway. Um, you know, ended up with a lot of mental health issues. I think his family believe he has CTE um, or uh, Parkinson's syndrome, whichever one it is. Um, but it's an absolute cracking song if you get a chance to to go and, and listen to it. Um, it. So I hope that Niran answers your question. Uh, Abby says, is cricket's biggest obstacle to attracting existing baseball fans the fact that baseball lets spectators in the stadium sit right behind the action? Often less than 10 metres away, whereas cricket, you could be more than 100 metres away and often feel detached from what's happening in the middle. Would a modified cricket allow for the same hitting zone as baseball resonate with them better? I mean, no, because it would just be baseball then. Um, I, I talk about this a lot. I don't think people understand that you know, you hear the knowledgeable cricket fans, but if you're sitting side on at a cricket game, you're probably, what, anywhere between 60 and 100 metres away from the action. You don't have the best angle if you're side on. It's actually very hard for cricket fans to be able to pick up a lot of things if they're in the ground. That Having said that, when I went to baseball, I went to a playoff game. Uh, so I went to the Coliseum and I saw the A's take on the Tigers. And... I would say the vast majority of the fans seem to be there to sing songs and, uh, you know, make the appropriate noises at the right time and laugh when the mascot came out and everything. So, yes, you're closer to the sport, but I wasn't sitting there feeling it was any different than an ODI crowd. They were there to party and drink and, you know, they loved their team and, you know, it was certainly supporting their team. But I don't think they were sitting there going, uh, that's the slider, that's the curve. Like, certainly, the, you know, and I was sitting, you know, uh, in in slightly more expensive seats, uh, I wasn't out in the bleachers or anything like that. So from that perspective, I didn't feel like it was all that different. But I think that as a as a rule, cricket has an issue with that, just because new fans are so removed. Which is one reason why it's remarkable to me. It took so long for anyone to put numbers on the players, just because casual fans just don't know who these players are. And so I think there are ways of helping casual fans out. But no, I don't think there's a form of cricket that we'll ever have where you'll be closer unless it's like indoor cricket or cage cricket, which is not as good. Vivek says, um, what are the most unexpected places you've seen people playing cricket? Oh, do you know what? I saw someone playing cricket today in the rain uh, just outside Old Trafford. Um, and it's very rare you see people playing cricket in the rain in England. Um, and there was a bunch of kids playing it. It was absolutely hammering down and they were still playing in a school right opposite Old Trafford, which sounds silly to say that that's an unlikely place. Um I remember being in India and there were a bunch of kids playing at like 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night on the street. And I suppose it wasn't so much, and and it was obviously a street with very good lighting on it. Um, And it wasn't so much that it was an unlikely place, but an unlikely time. Um, But yeah, you know, I've seen, I, I reckon that there was a really, really full on game played at Dharamashala in the streets. It's, it's, is the city called Dharamashala? I'm trying to remember. Um, the Indians will be going nuts to me. But, you know, the, the city that's just near the ground. Um, and there was, like, someone will pl- people were playing, like, on, kind of on the side of a mountain and the ball was going off in a weird place. Um, 
I'm sure there's just many different weird places uh, that I've seen cricket over the years, but those are the ones that kind of spring to mind, one of which because it happened today, Vivek. Uh, Aditya says, radio broadcasts are still very popular in Australia and England. How does it fare in other parts of the cricketing world? There's not th- Those are the two strongest radio markets within cricket. So I think from that perspective, um, it's, it's very, very strong because of that. West Indies has a really strong radio culture, but the problem is the same problem that West Indies always find faces which is that the the radio is split you know there's a popular radio station in this town and or this country and this island and all that sort of stuff uh, but radio is really big in the west indies um when i go up there i'm always asked to go on these radio shows and you know massive amounts of listeners and we'll always get feedback whereas i can go on a big station in australia and england and not get as much feedback whereas in the west indies um uh, you know certainly there's something there cricket south Af- uh, south african radio used to be quite strong when it came to cricket, um, I think the New Zealand rights are still fairly strong. But if you talk about making money as an industry, the only places that I can kind of get paid to do it properly are Australia and England, uh, which is a bit of a shame for me because I don't do TV commentary, so I don't have as many options available to me. India, uh, there's been a bit of a movement towards it, and I know that Pakistan, there was a bit of a movement towards it. I think when streaming, radio, digital radio streaming becomes a bigger thing, has already become, I mean, that's why I tried to build a business around this mm-hmm. because I think there are enough people to listen to it, but I don't think traditional radio is the way to do it. I think the way to do it is to have an app that allows you to stream cricket commentary from all around the world. Uh, we didn't quite manage to get the funding. We wanted for 99.94, but other people will do it. But yeah, certainly South Africa, New Zealand and West Indies are the ones that come to mind the most. And then I know that Pakistan has tried to make a play with it of recent times. And there's still certainly, um, you know, some broadcast in India, but it's, it's, Australia and, and England is were very strong radio cultures um, on top of anything, on top of everything else. I mean, if you think about Australia, you know, you're driving such long distances, um, especially in regional Australia, that radio just becomes a big thing. A lot of my favourite cricket memories are not me watching cricket in Australia. It was listening to it on the radio, which is probably why I became a radio commentator. Uh, Ian says, if Stokes' bowling career was to come to an end, as his cap- is his captaincy valuable enough that he could stay at number six or does he have to bat higher? I think he has to bat higher, not from a sort of taking his captaincy out of it, Ian. I think he has to bat higher just because if he's not going to captain, I think it makes a lot more sense from that perspective for him to be batting higher and taking on a bigger load. Like He doesn't need to bat at number six if he's not bowling. The whole idea is him being rested, right? I think we're getting closer to Stokes batting at number three. Um, there's also a possibility of him going back to number five as a specialist batter, which allows them to pick someone like Will Jacks or Moen Alley or Liam Dawson or, you know, whoever the next version of that sort of player is that comes through. Sam Curran, if they think his batting has improved. Um, there's just no reason for Stokes to bat, be a specialist number six uh, batter uh, uh, in a country that produces a lot of all-around talent. I just think it's kind of a waste for them. Um, they're going to want to get more bowling in that top six. It's kind of how English get, enjoys um, doing stuff. Sasbro says, is it a problem in Australia's best bowling quartet hasn't changed since 2017? Come and start Hazelwood Lion. Is there, a re- is there a lack of 90 mile an hour pace specialists coming through the system? No. I mean, Billy Stanlake, I said from the first time I saw him, should have been one of the best bowlers that ever existed. He just could never get it right. Jai Richardson is a fantastic bowler um, and physically hasn't been able to, you know, keep his body together. James Pattinson, you could put there. So there's three guys who've come through the system who all probably should have played a lot more international cricket. Um, And then you've got Lance Morris coming through and I'm missing someone else. 
there's another bowler I'm missing there as well. But, you know, so there are other guys. I mean, what you're really talking about is Cummins, Stark, and Hazelwood and Lyon are, you know, kind of once in a generation bowlers. The fact that they've been, managed to get as much cricket out of all three of them as they, uh, of the seamers and the spinner, really. I mean, Lyon very rarely gets injured up until recently, right? Um, has been remarkable. I don't think that's a problem. It's a bit like saying, you know, uh, that Gillespie and McGrath were there for so long, you know, or Ponting and um, Ponting and War, and you know, were there for so long and no one else was there. That's kind of what you want. Uh, and in in Australia's case, you know, having Boland, um, having Nisa, even having Chad Sayers, Jackson Bird, they've had other good bowlers coming through. But how do you dismantle or dislodge these other guys? And it just it's not possible, right? Sashmo also says, should Gavaskar be considered as great as Tendulkar or Hobbs, given that he faced Lily, Imran, Roberts, Marshall, Garner, Hadley, and Pete Botham as an opener? Um, I think he was absolutely fantastic. I, I think, remember with Gavaskar that a lot of his opening comes in India, which is a traditionally easier place to open than other uh, venues. Having said that, I think he averages roughly 50 opening away from home. Um, he doesn't have the quite the record against the West Indies that is often uh, mooted. Uh, if you go through it, it's not quite the level that, that you want. I think that I would find it hard to not think of Gavaskar as a top 10. I, I mean, I haven't done my list yet, so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I would think that Gavaskar is not far off being a top 10 test player of all time. I don't think he's quite on the list with Tendulkar or Hobbs, who I have higher than him, or Smith, who I have higher. Um, I wonder how far off he is Sutcliffe, for instance. Um, Hayden's another really interesting one as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think Gavaskar's fantastic, you know. It, I, and I think that Gavaskar was a proper bat. He wasn't just a good batter. I think he was a proper batting genius. You know, him batting left-handed in a game, the stories about how he could pick when Holder was... Um, Holder? He didn't face Holder, did he? Holding was bowling bounces to him. Um, all these sorts of things. There's a lot of fantastic stories when it comes to him. And um, I certainly uh, don't discount uh, how brilliant he was. I, I, I do think he's one of those players who has maybe not helped his legacy by the way he talks about the game. I've said this before, and I should write all these down because occasionally he'll say something. And, it, and he will stop me in my tracks because I've never heard anyone say what he's just said on commentary. But so much of what he says on commentary is just inane, right? And it does, I do think it, it hurts your legacy in, in a way. Um, but also, Tendulkar came after him, Dravid came after him, Coley has come after him, you know, Prith for sure, Jaiswell, Gill, whoever you want. You know, that is another thing that I think has lessened him in the same way that Steve War, Border, and um, Smith and Ponting um, probably made Greg Chappell not look as good as he was, right? Which is also not true. Anyway, let's have one more break. And then after the break, we'll see if there's any super chats and anything else in the room. But you're listening to Jared Kimber on Wagon Wheel. All right, welcome back. Well, let's just I get to the room. We've got some great super chats here. Ah, uh, ah, uh, oh, helps if I put it up on the screen, doesn't it? Uh You'd think that someone who's worked with this technology his whole life. Actually, before we get to Super Chats, I've got a couple more, don't I? Sorry. Uh, Patrick says, uh, your knockoff cricket video games, e.g. Jared Timber, 
Uh, so to, to explain this, when we when we started playing cricket games in my generation, so 80s, 90s, 2000s, a lot of the people who were buying the cricket games obviously didn't have the rights. And so there was a lot of fake names. You still get it now, of course. Um, Wicked Cricket Manager is um, uh, certainly has some uh, names, although I've noticed that they've gone a little bit friendlier with their names and less, less knockoffy. Um, but uh, so I put up a tweet, I think, about it and got incredible responses from people. There's some really good ones out there. Um, but uh, what are the worst mispronunciations of players' names you've heard? Well, I mean, Josh Butler is so consistent and Pat Cummings is so consistent that those certainly come to mind. But cricket is, you're talking about 3,000 professionals, Patrick, of which even, you know, Sonal Gavaska, we were just talking about his commentary. I would get comments from people all the time telling me that Sonal Gavaska mispronounces a lot of the Indian names, right? And, oh, actually, having said all that, I actually know the worst mispronunciation of a name. And it's Jeff Thompson talking about Glenn McGrath, who he called pretty much throughout his career McGrath. Go look it up. See if you can find any clips of it, anyone, if you can. It was just, it was so bizarre because everyone knew his name was McGrath. And even when Tomo, it would be pointed out to Tomo, it didn't work. So I think that's probably the worst one. Um, just because no one thought it was McGrath <laughs> at that point. You know, um, Moses Enriquez, Moses Enriquez uh, was one. Josh Philippi um, uh, is another one in Australia. I'm trying to think of some of the, if there are any New Zealand ones. Uh, I mean, the R. Ashwin, Ravi Ashwin one's really interesting, right? You know, Ravi Chandran Ashwin. I think... Bayram called him uh, Ravi Ashwin the other day, and so many people were saying that for a long period of time. Mispronunciations. Because um, Josh and Cummings aren't mispronunciations, are they? They're actually people saying this person's name wrong. Um, the, I suppose the best one, and this is, there's something happened in the West that I don't understand, but the Punjab, I was taught to say Punjab, and you listen to people, you know, who followed cricket forever. We always call it the Punjab when we're in the West, where it's Punjab, right? Punjab. I think I got it wrong again. Punjab, isn't it? Um, I always found that a really, really interesting one because it's a kind of famous cricket term that is used quite a bit, even before there was an IPL team there. Um, so I suppose that was that was certainly one. Um, I'm trying to think of any others, any names. I know you want mispronunciations, Patrick, but the other one I always think of is that Darren Sammy's name was obviously always misspelled, and so was Angelo Matthews' name always misspelled. Not quite mispronunciations, uh, but Glenn McGrath, epic. Will says, in the multi-format Ashes, should the winner of the series be used as an initial tiebreaker if the scores are tied? Seems a bit silly if England win the last game and tie the series on points uh, with both... Uh, 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 with both the T20 and ODI series. Yeah, so the women's ash, it's kind of weird, isn't it? I don't think they've thought through all the permutations. I wonder, Will, uh, and I, I'd have to look at this score, Will, to see if we even have to worry about this at the moment. Um, yeah, let's have a look. Australia, uh, oh, it's, it's raining, right? So I can't, I need to look up Douglas Lewis and everything. I'm not going to do that live on air, especially because this podcast will be out in two days' time and no one cares. But yeah, I don't think they've looked through all the different things. So it will be possible um, in this situation that uh, in the future they might say, well, if if the if you're level on points but you've won more series, then you get the um, uh, then you get the trophy. Uh, I think that's fair, but obviously it's not going to happen this time. It's a bit like the boundary countback, right? You never you quite often don't worry about those things until they happen. Niran says, is it possible that Christopher Columbus missed with the Caribbean in the, uh, to India um, after seeing the pitch for the Dominican Test match? 
I don't think people understand how many West Indian pitchers really rag. Like, it is a very common thing and always has been. You know, the Trini pitchers, the Guyana pitchers. Uh, I don't know as much about the Dominican pitchers, if we're being honest. But it is a thing that pitchers in the West Indies do really rag. And then, of course, you have the other islands where the ball absolutely flies through. And then you have some great batting pitchers. Um, it really is a very varied place. Uh, you know, when you're there, you know, Guyana doesn't really feel like St. Lucia. And they're not particularly close to each other. I should know my islands better um, or, or my continent and islands better in that case. Um, but they are very varied. There are a lot of wickets in West Indies that have always spun a lot. I'm not sure why you play India on them. Uh, Aditya says, when did the 50, 100, five wicket halls and 10 wicket halls become milestone? So 50 and 100, I think is late 1700s when they start to become a little bit more common. Uh I'm not as sure about the five-wicket halls and the ten-wicket halls because I would have thought traditionally we would have seen a lot of those because what you would have got, especially with underarm bowling, is probably one person bowling 25 overs consistently from one end. So I'm not as sure with that. That might be a, que a question for Abhishek Mukherjee, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that the 50s and the 100s become a bit of a big thing around that late 1700s, that sort of Hambledon era. Vikas says, what do you think about Mohamed Shami? 229 wickets uh, in 64 matches, averaging 27 and a strike rate of 50. Where do you rank him in the current fast bowlers? Look, I think he's a fantastic bowler, but I think for a long period of his career, he didn't... It, I, I, Vikas, I don't know how much you, your cricket knowledge is, but there was a bowler called Chris Martin. And when you watch Chris Martin, you would always say, and earlier Shan Sharma was like this as well, you watch those guys and you go, they should be getting a lot more wickets than they were but i think there's probably a fundamental reason why they weren't getting them i think in muhammad shami's case he was probably bowling just a little bit either too wide or a little bit too short and i think now that he's bowling a little bit fuller um and you know attacking the stumps a little bit better I, I do think that has changed his trajectory but i think he's a fantastic bowler and i don't think a bowling average i think i'd like to see him end up with a bowling average of closer to 25 but at his best he's probably one of my favorite bowlers in the world to watch you know his ability but he moves both ways is fantastic. All right. Let us get to uh, the questions in YouTube. Uh, thanks to everyone. A everyone for putting comments and chatting. Uh, rooms bumping as usual. So huge thank you for me. RR sent a super chat. And he said, will ODIs be limited to the World Cup going forward? No. Because they'll all, I think if we're going to have a World Cup, we're still going to have to have friendlies and, you know, practice matches before World Cups. But if you're talking about the relevance of ODIs, I've always thought that that will end up just being in one day cricket. Yes. So I suppose from that perspective, RI, yes. But there will be ODIs outside of it, but they'll be seen more as warm up games um, than anything else. I think going ahead. Uh, George Devine, uh, thank you for your super chats, says, do you think it's risky going in with no spinners at Old Trafford? Australia seem to be expecting a lot of overs out of injury-prone Marsh and Green. Yeah, but if you put them together, the chances of them both getting injured, George, are quite slim. Um, no, because they're still going to have lots of fast bowling options as well, aren't they? They have Head, who's handy sort of, what, a Dean Elgar-type level um, backup spinner. When it works, it works. Uh, I'm with you that I think Old Trafford is a weird place not to take a spinner. But I also think at this point, it's almost chips in that think Marsh and Green are just going to be of more use to them in this game. And I, I, I came up here with Dan Norcross um, and he was saying that the way that England play in basketball, that they, the innings aren't particularly long anyway. 
right? So you don't need that um, spinner to be able to, you know, rest everyone as much as you would normally. So yes, you might need them as an attacking option and everything else. Um, but, I, I, and I would say one other thing is that Todd Murphy didn't look like he handled the pressure particularly well. I thought he bowled well at times in that last test, but I did think he struggled a little bit in that second innings. And I wonder if that's another reason they've decided not to go in with him. But thank you, George. Shrikant says, do you think limited overs cricket, um, as conceived in the 60s, was cricket's original sin? Should we have uh, preserved the essence of the traditional game by having a, a five-wicket game and encouraging aggression? No, I, I like limited overs cricket and the way that it's done. Um, you know, we've had single-wicket games, five-wicket games, you know, shorter games all the way through, you know, different variations of cricket all the way through. Um, but I don't have a particular problem with one day cricket. I, I think I, or I think I naturally prefer T20 almost straight away. I think it's a slightly better format. Um, it work, I, works a little bit better. I think the way that one day cricket is played by England, I find a lot more interesting, but perhaps the way it's been played um, throughout the history has not been as exciting. Um, but yeah, I, I don't mind I don't mind the idea of a a game that where you can use all your eleven players, um, but there are still limits on the way that the bowls are used within that. I think, and you know, the fielding circle and those sorts of things. I kind of like the differences between white ball cricket and red ball cricket from that perspective. So I don't think I quite see it from that way. But I understand your idea of you know having a five wicket game, and, you know, encouraging aggression, all those sorts of things. I think is really really interesting. But I just think that this one. I think one day cricket's also really fascinating, even if it's you know not my favourite. Uh, but thank you very much for your uh, super chat and and to yourself, George, and RR. Oh, I got one more super chat here from Vamasab, who says, "I'm not kidding. I think you're pretty handsome. Imagine paying me to tell me I'm handsome. That's got to be one of the more bizarre things uh, anyone's ever done." Also, thank you very much for saying I'm handsome with this lighting. Uh, I've got my weird light in a weird place over here with the backlight and everything. So I wouldn't have thought that I was at peak handsomeness right now. But the fact that you think I am has given me uh, incredible confidence that I don't usually possess. Uh, uh, thanks to everyone for the super chats. Uh, Orange says, which skill, leg spin, openers, wicket keepers, do you think it's the hardest to compare accurately to eras? Wow, I suppose wicket keeping because it's the one that's changed the most, Oren. Because you know, wicket keeping started as a specialist position and is now something that you throw the gloves to a fourteen-year-old kid because you picked a squad and you realize you don't have a wicket keeper in, right? So the difference there, openers are still openers. Yes, the game has changed, you know, quite dramatically from you know the eighteen fifties through to today when it comes to opening batting. But you're still picked because you you can handle the new ball, even if the new ball is different. Um, and leg spin. Is faster now, but I'm not sure leg spin has changed as massively. As wicket keeping, I think the, the very people who do wicket keeping are different than have ever been before. Really interesting question though, that one. Lester Jr. says, are you in England right now? Yeah, I've been at all the test matches. I live in England, so I'm kind of always in England. Uh, but yeah, I've been at all the test. So what have I been at? Uh, I will have been at seven test matches by the end of uh, this summer. And then August, I've got nothing to do. So I'll watch some hundred. And is there any major league cricket on in August? I haven't even looked at the schedule yet. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, I live in England, so I'll be at all the matches. So I'm currently in Salford in th this room's actually a lot nicer than this angle makes out. Um, anyway, Ryan says that video you did on women's bats was elite cricket, nuffy content. Look, that's what we're going for is elite 
cricket nuffy content. Um, have a look at the Scott Boland video if you guys haven't seen that. Today. I, I find that I found that a really interesting topic about how his um, game has changed and everything else. Um, but uh, uh, thank you, Ryan, for that one. And Ember says, "Can't bowl, can't throw by six and out." It's a classic. Yeah, I think that song is on the original M- uh, the EP that they released because they didn't release an album. Uh, my memory is that six and out they released like maybe slightly more than a single. There might have been three or four songs on it. Um, I have to check. There wasn't many. Um, I do remember buying it not long after it came out and it was in a bargain basement, um, you know, in the big, bu- if you remember old CD stores where, you know, you had all the nice CDs um, and then this one, I, like it took me a while to actually find it. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a remarkable bit of music, uh, cricket music history. Mark Butcher, of course, you can get his music. John Wright does country music. So Mark Butcher does uh, blues uh, John Wright does a country music. I'm trying to think of anyone else uh, that sort of releases stuff professionally. I don't think we've had a cricket rapper yet. And if we have, please send me all of it. Um, and as far as, you know, songs about cricket, you know, there's some, uh, there's some great old um, uh, reggae songs about cricket. Um, there is the Paul Kelly song about Don Bradman. I'm trying to think if there's anything else um, off the top of my head. Um, those are the ones that come to mind. There's um, the Fred Titman song, of course. Um, and, and is there not also uh, the parables of Glenn McGrath's haircut? Or if you're Jeff Thompson, the parables of Glenn McGrath's haircut. Um, but yeah, uh, the parable of Glenn McGrath's haircut, probably not one to play in front of your children or your mother-in-law, uh, that one. Um, you'll understand why when you listen to it. But it's by a band called Tism. Um, but certainly a, a very, very good. So there's some great... I will do a podcast eventually about, you know, cricket songs, you know, songs by cricketers, but also some of the other songs out there about cricket. There's some fascinating stuff out there. Anyway, one last um, uh, uh, super chat is coming in from Jay. who says, is it time for ODIs and T20s to have a league type tournaments with promotion and relegation, which will incentivize the bottom ranked teams to compete? I don't know if you know this, Jay, we just had one with ODI cricket um, and uh, there wasn't time for it. <laughs> it's the best way to put it. It was a great idea. I, I said this, they've done it 15 years earlier could have really changed where international cricket would be at this point. But they did it too late. There isn't enough time in in, in the uh, the calendar for this amount of cricket. It made a mess that, you know, South Africa had to cancel a bunch of their games. It was huge for Netherlands cricket, really changed their cricket, probably helped Ireland a lot as well, although I'd have to argue it doesn't look like it helped Ireland as much. But, yeah, I do think from that perspective it would have been great, but it's too late now. I think... The leagues and franchises will be for domestic cricket. You might see some ODI domestic leagues and franchises. I know there are certainly some people who are interested in that, and that's what originally the IPL was supposed to be. I'm not sure we'll see that much of it, but I do see think we'll see a little bit of it. But certainly uh, we'll see things like that going ahead in the future. But I think that ODI cricket and T20 cricket at the international level will probably be more World Cups um, and warm-up games going ahead, just because I just don't think there's enough time. And eventually, as franchise leagues make more money, you don't need to play as many of those international games and cash in. Although, I would have thought by now we would already be at that point, Jay. And apparently, we're just going to keep playing more cricket until the cricketers are all exhausted. Uh, but thank you very much to everyone for coming in. Some great questions there, as always. Uh, uh, really enjoyed doing that. Sorry I had to do Wagon Wheel a little bit earlier, but... You know, uh, I'm going to be at the test match for the next couple of days. So it was going to be a tough one to do. Uh, but thank you to everyone in the chat, uh, as always, and for everyone who supported us on Patreon, which is the best way. But you can also support us on Buy Me a Coffee as well. Um, or you can uh, subscribe to the um, Substack. 
Um, but we'll be back again next week. Me and Bayram will be back probably on Monday for Uncovered. And Barrett's actually staying around the corner from me, so I could actually kidnap him and make him do a podcast. But when he's touring, he gets tour brain, Barrett. He can't, can't deal with two things at once. But I'm sure he'll be back for some of the podcasts again very, very soon. But thank you to everyone, and uh, we will see you again next time. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orijoti, Saina Payu, and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Mukunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. Podcast Network.